when we teach science, we shouldn't be focusing on teaching facts. We shouldn't even necessarily be focused on teaching concepts. We should be focused on teaching process, on teaching what science really is um, as a process. Um, especially for non-science majors who are going to go out in the world and deal with all sorts of challenges that are infused with science in all sorts of ways, but who aren't going to be practicing scientists. They need to understand what science actually brings to the table, and they need to be able to interpret what goes on in the world um, around them. You're listening. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to the Learning Futures Podcast. The Learning Futures Podcast. The Learning Futures Podcast. On this show, we explore big ideas, key issues, and questions facing education now and into the future, moving from what currently is to what could and should be, including considering serendipities and setbacks along the way. I'm honored and thrilled to be joined today by Ariel Anbar. Ariel, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Uh, sure. Uh, so I'm a professor at Arizona State University in the School of Earth and Space Exploration and the School of Molecular Sciences. Uh, and I also have an affiliation with the uh, Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College. Um, and I direct a center at ASU called the Center for Education Through Exploration. Um, so just a little bit of, of context. So I'm, a, I'm not a, a, a scholar of education. I'm a geoscientist. I study Earth's history, its past as an inhabited world and what we're doing to it now and the a prospect that there might be other inhabited worlds elsewhere in our universe. I'm an astrobiologist and a geochemist. So I'm, I'm really a practitioner of the teaching of science. Um, I, I, when I came to ASU in 2004, I became um, involved in a big way in, in teaching science at large scale. And uh, through that, I became very interested in finding better ways uh, to teach at large scale, um, to teach science in particular. Uh, and that led down a path of various projects uh, of figuring out how to use digital technology to teach science better, uh, better even than we do often in our traditional in-person curricula. And that eventually then led to creation of the center, uh, which is dedicated to learning how to uh, create digital resources that are used both in higher education and in high school, and middle school to advance the art of, of teaching science. I'd be happy to go into depth in any of those directions. Excellent. Yeah. And I think what a fascinating uh, background and perspective you offer to education. And I think our listeners would be interested in hearing maybe some of your perspectives on what do you feel are some of the key or pressing educational issues? And you mentioned, you know, using digital technologies to teach science. And given that we're living in this kind of digitally mediated space, what kinds of our pressing issues or challenges do you see with respect to that? And maybe we can unpack that a little bit further. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I got into this, you know, when I came to ASU in 2004, it was my first time coming to the the big research university. My, my career prior to that was all at, at smaller elite private institutions. And so I was doing the 200 person lecture class, you know, teaching general chemistry. And, uh, you know, I, I felt this is really not a good learning experience, nor a good teaching experience, no matter how great a lecturer, you know, I might be, I'm not that great, but you know, I'm better than average. But even if, even if, you know, Carl Sagan, somebody who's a brilliant orator, right, is teaching a lecture class, probably by the time you're halfway through a 15 week course, you know, you're, you're, you're ready for something else, right? You're, t- you're tuning out and whatever or- oratorial tricks the, the lecturer has are, are no longer working on you by then, right? So, uh, you know, I started getting very interested in active learning and how can we, how can we teach science uh, actively? And that leads naturally into asking, well, what is it that we're really trying to teach? 
and to the notion that, you know, I already had in my mind from way back when that when we teach science, we shouldn't be focusing on teaching facts. We shouldn't even necessarily be focused on teaching concepts, especially to non-science majors. We should be focused on teaching process, on teaching what science really is um, as a process, um, especially for non-science majors. We're going to go out in the world and deal with all sorts of challenges that are infused with science in all sorts of ways, but who aren't going to be practicing scientists. They need to understand what science actually brings to the table, and they need to be able to interpret what goes on in the world um, around them. Uh, and we could talk about COVID and all that and how how failure to understand what science is really all about, you know, drives some of some dysfunctions that we're seeing right now. Really figuring out how we can teach process, teach science as a practice, teach science as a thing that people do and what that means, drove a lot of my thinking. And that drove me to digital technology, but in a different way from how most online education was working. Um, the big thrust of online education starting in the middle 2000s when I got into this was coming from the standpoint of saying, hey, we do this great education at the university. How can we make it more accessible? Right? How can we take the teaching that we do and, and, and make it available to many more people? And I came at it with a slightly different approach saying that, hey, you know, we do all this teaching in the university, but it, it really could be better. <laughs> so how, how can we make it better? And while we're doing that, how can we make it more accessible? Uh, and so the first wave of online education, for the most part, focused on making the existing mode of teaching more accessible. And that, that meant virtual lectures, right? And here I was saying, well, yeah, but lectures are really not a great way to teach science. Can't we use computer technology to do things that are much more interesting than, than lectures and PowerPoint slides? Um, you know, just look at video games and you can see these intensely immersive, interactive, adaptive things that are teaching people all sorts of stuff that's not very useful, but it's, it's education of a sort. Couldn't we tap some of that to teach science in a deeper way? And so I went down that path. Um, so, that, so the problems I've, I've been trying to address are the problems of access in part, which are, are huge in higher education. But layered on top of that was the challenge of, uh, is the challenge of uh, how do we teach science as process so that more people understand what it is that, that science really offers and, and what it doesn't. That's great. And I think it's a, a question that many of us are thinking about, particularly given that we're using uh, digital technologies to teach a lot more. And so right. there are obviously still issues with um, access and equity with respect to access, but also, as you mentioned, engagement. So, you know, more than just access, you know, can we engage young people into meaningful learning experiences? And as you say, help them think more about process and how that might apply in their own life. So what are some of the things that you can maybe share with our listeners, some of the projects or things you've worked on or are seeing that seem quite promising with respect to this? What what would that look like? And what is sure. what is that experience like? Sure. So I'll focus on some of the things that, that we've been doing. So, uh, you know, we started out really focusing on what we call um, uh, immersive, interactive virtual field trips. Uh, so I'm a geoscientist by training. And so geoscience is a very place-based kind of science. You know, you go to certain field sites and you study the, the, the geology, the rocks, the sediments in those locations, the chemistry of, the lo of that environment, and, and learn things about either its history or, or today from those locations. So it's very place-based. And so it was natural to fall into being interested in using technology to create the ability for a student to experience place, right, to experience locations in a way that they, that they can't without being there but it goes well beyond just seeing pictures and, and text descriptions. And so we started on the path of trying to, to, to create virtually uh, some simulation of a great physical field trip. And what, what goes into a great physical field trip? Well, uh, let me describe, first of all, what's, what's not a great physical field trip. Right? One that's not great is where you, you, you go to a physical location and somebody lectures to you at the location. <laughs> 
right? So that's that's better than being lectured to in lecture hall, but it's still fundamentally passive, right? What you really want to do is 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 take people to the location and have them have to figure things out, have them have to make their own observations uh, to try to to understand a problem, uh, to unravel some puzzle. And so we started building virtual field trips at locations ranging from the Grand Canyon to uh, very important scientific locations in Australia, Panama Rainforest, all sorts of places where we um, would layer in into we, the, the base experience is is a is a 360 degree spherical image. This isn't true VR. It's something you can experience on a web browser. Um, we've avoided for the most part true VR because it's still expensive and, and limited. But every, most people can get to a web browser now. Uh, at least very large numbers of people. So. So we, we, we created these experiences around 360 degree spherical technology, kind of like what is used by high-end real estate sites now, uh, but full screen, um, you know, enabling you to have this sense of you are there at the location and layering in all sorts of media into that and then layering into, into that adaptive learning. So that, what does that mean? It means you're in the location, you have some kind of puzzle challenge questions presented to you and you have to interrogate the environment. You have to make observations of the environment and get and you get feedback along the way to what you're doing and to the way you're answering questions that tutor you um, in an adaptive way to the the learning that we want to try to uh, to impart. So so it's a little bit like a like a game, like a video game, right? In a you know virtual world type of video game, right? You're you're exploring the environment. You have to do certain things, and you get feedback in various ways uh, to what you're doing that guides you in the right direction. Um, so it's a little bit like that, except, you know, we aren't teaching you how to shoot aliens or we're teaching you how to understand certain scientific concepts. Um, and I, and I hesitate to use the word game cause it isn't, it isn't a game in the sense of aiming to entertain, but we definitely have game-like elements that, that convey a certain, certain sense of, um, of fun, make the thing compelling. So that's how we started. Yeah. These immersive experiences certainly sound a lot more, um, engaging and compelling than I think many of the field trips I've been on or many, probably many of our listeners. So you know, and again, you mentioned that part of your kind of larger goal is to help young people understand science as a process and maybe infuse that into their own life. So what is that connection that you're making between these kinds of immersive experiences that you've designed and provide? And also, you know, where can people, our listeners see or maybe experience these themselves? Is there a way of doing that? Or do you have to be a student to see some examples of that? Sure. So so first of all, you, anybody can go to experience our virtual field trips. They're open to the public. So you go to VFT uh, for virtual field trip dot ASU dot EDU. And uh, you can explore a variety of different locations and, and design philosophies. It's sort of a website where we just put the various things that we build. Um, so there's there's some things there that are just you know guide yourself you know here's an environment all sorts of media layered in go see what's there, and then we have some that have elaborate adaptive feedback uh, uh, layered into it. Um, uh, one thing that's very recent called Surviving Extinction is really built as a kind of learning game, um, where you have to follow the evolution of uh, of organisms and 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 see if you can get from a root organism to a more evolved one and how that happens and you make make choices along the way. So uh, all rooted in, in virtual environments. So uh, so it's, it's pretty easy for people to access that. Um, we have other things that you can access. Um, uh, this is a little harder one to spell out, but uh, we have a large NASA funded project that is in part based on virtual field trips, but in part also based on uh, interactive 
simulations with adaptive tutoring behind them. There are some concepts that don't lend themselves to place-based learning, but you can still teach through simulations that, that students have to manipulate and learn their way through. That's the Infiniscope project. Infiniscope is uh, um, spelled the way it sounds. Easier to get to if you can't, since we're on a podcast, uh, is to go to the website of the Center for Education through Exploration at ASU, which is ETX. Dot asu.edu. Uh, from there, you can link out to, to anything that we do. As far as science as process, right? So, 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 what does that what does that mean in terms of these learning experiences? Well, so the way I describe the virtual field trips, for example, the learner isn't being told up front what it is they're supposed to know, right? There, there's no lecturing. There may be little tidbits where they're told certain things, but fundamentally, what the learner is engaged in is um, a process where they have to obtain their own data. What, what do I mean by data? They have to make observations. They have to make their observations themselves with some guidance, but they have to make the observations themselves and are tutored into drawing their own conclusions from the data, from the observations. And that's that's fundamentally what, what is at the core of science as process, right? Science is about trying to make sense of the world in an empirical way based on what you observe, guided sometimes by theory. And you use observations in order to develop theories that will predict future observations. But fundamentally, what science is is about, for the most part, is is this very strong empirical grounding in in the world as it is and trying to understand it and make sense of it and so we're trying to impart that and we and and by not having it just be a lecture so the problem with the lecture mode right is fundamentally you're you're giving the wrong message right you're you are you are um by the mode of of education you are implying that science is about expert knowledge right that that science that, that science is this body of knowledge that you must master um, and maybe the lecture is trying to convey something else, but but fundamentally the mode of learning that you're engaged in sitting in a lecture hall listening to somebody tell you stuff is, you know, the sage on a stage giving you this secret knowledge. But that's not what science is. Science is not about that, uh, about the knowledge. Science is about the process of obtaining the knowledge. So if we use digital technology to, to, to uproot that and instead teach through the learner discovering for themselves what the knowledge is, then now we are, we are teaching science the way it's it's actually done at least in a in a simplified way i think that's very powerful um so so that that's part of it and another and another key part of it which frankly we don't manifest in the digital technology as much as we should yet is that science is a form of dialogue right two different observers looking at the scene gathering data often will come up with different interpretations. And the two different interpretations aren't necessarily equally valid, but you may need to get make more observations in order to figure out which one is the correct one, right? And science is, yeah, the way it's actually practiced is this ongoing dialogue between scientists, right, who are making their own sets of observations, coming up with their own interpretations, and then in continual dialogue with each other to try to refine the observations and test their ideas to figure out what's right. So it's fundamentally a dialogue. It's fundamentally a debate. It's fundamentally an argument, um, and the public really doesn't understand this to a large extent, right? Right, which is why you get you know fear around masks, right? So at one point we weren't supposed to wear masks, and then we were, right? And so part of that, there's a bunch of reasons that that recommendation evolved, but part of it had to do with our changing understanding of the facts on the ground, and that that shouldn't be taken as some kind of a sign that the scientists don't know what they're talking about or the science is wrong or anything like that. That's, that's the way science works. That's science at work is that the, the recommendations are going to change as our knowledge improves and different theories are put against each other and tested. That's the way it works. That's the way it's supposed to work. So this is part of what I say when I, when I mean, when I say that it's important for the public at large to have a deeper understanding of what science is as process. 
um, an intuitive understanding of what science is a process. Because when scientists are disagreeing, that shouldn't undermine your faith in science. That should give you confidence that, it, oh, science is really at work here. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying uh, really resonates with me as a creativity researcher and, and my work on creative learning in that you're kind of trying to disrupt this inherited experience of learning as being a spectator to somebody else's process, <laughs> you know, watching the instructor or professor, you know, engage in these things called science or whatever, and actually invited into the process. And more importantly, this kind of dialogic and more dynamic and emergent um, experience where we realize that, you know, as we learn more, perspectives change and more perspectives shed new light on things. And this is how we develop new ways of thinking and acting. So I think that resonates, obviously, with me as a creativity researcher, but I think for many of our audience members. But I think you raised some really interesting questions because here we still tend to have these um, more, I would say, static spectator type approaches to education, particularly online, you know, online really just changed, you know, the window of what we're looking at for many folks rather than the kind of experience. And so given this is the Learning Futures podcast, what I'd invite you to do now is to kind of consider some possible futures. So we say that in the plural here, and maybe you've kind of talked on about this a little bit, but maybe if you could explore with this kind of the good that you see in this direction, you know, what are some possible good futures? What are some possible bad futures? And then most importantly, what are some possible beautiful futures? All right. Well, that's a, that's a tall order. Um, the, the bad futures are, I think are kind of easy to imagine, uh, because, um, they're a simple extrapolation from what, from some of the worst things that we're doing now. Right. So a bad future would be, uh, lots of passive learning from video, uh, lots of, uh, multiple choice tests, right? Um, lots of software, uh, even software that seems to be very sophisticated for education that's, that is designed for a mean, an average student, right? Who may not even exist. There may not be anyone who actually represents that mean, maybe a mythical mean that we design that way because we look at large data sets and we just average over them all and say, oh, well, that's what we're going to build to because that's the common denominator we want to go for. You know, I think, I, I think that's, that's a bad future, partly because it could be manifestly worse than what we're doing right now. Um, but more importantly, it's bad because it's a huge lost opportunity, the way I see it. Uh, because when I when I look at, at computer technology, I see this immense potential, right, for deeply interactive, engaging, and highly individualized learning that really meets each learner where they are, creates the potential, the possibility for to have to have what the student encounters be exactly what they need. Um, and get them to where they need to go and and follows along with them from you know through their through their life I mean I was going to say through their their schooling and their academic life but really um, increasingly that's through your entire life you know there there is this tremendous possibility I'm, I'm hardly the first one to paint that picture it's not a new picture but the technology has evolved to where we can really start to envision doing such things and even do some of them but we have to we have to want to do it we have to be willing to to invest the resources and the the creative energy and the will, the, the sociological will to do it. So, so the 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 beautiful future, right, is one in which uh, learners are learning inherently in this way that's that's very, as we call it, constructivist, right, where they are where they are exposed to pedagogy that is giving them the opportunity to create their own knowledge uh, through various sorts of exploratory approaches, various sorts of experiential approaches. I think this word experiential needs to be emphasized a lot more. Uh, and in a way that that is highly adapted and tuned to what 
they need because we're using sophisticated enough software to be able to form profiles of what the learner knows and doesn't know and and by through experience of many many other learners be able to know what that type of learner living in that kind of context because context matters hugely right for learning needs in order to help them get to the next level of understanding and whatever it is they're trying to learn there's tremendous potential for that but we need to want to go there we need to really paint the vivid pictures of what that is uh, in order to, to get people inspired to do it. So that's that's the kind of utopian use of digital learning technology, as opposed to the dystopian one, which is just a lot a lot more of what, what we're doing right now. And so you're seeing the, the kind of pathway to that more utopian or beautiful future in some of the, the projects that you're doing. Are there any other steps that you think um, we could be taking kind of collectively or individually to, to move towards that? The projects that, so the project that we're doing are, are baby steps in that direction, right? So we have a philosophy and a vision and we're doing what we can as a university center involving a few faculty, you know, to do some pioneering work in that direction. I should, I should add what we're trying to do in our center. We're not doing research work. I mean, we are doing research around what we do, but fundamentally it's a, it's a center that is involved in projects where we're actually building things that we are deploying with, with real learners, whether it's uh, college learners in our habitable worlds or bio beyond courses here at ASU or or learners in high school, middle school, encountering Infiniscope learning experiences. We're building and deploying and then learning what works and doesn't by researching around that. Um, but there's only so much that you know one center can do, even, even a, a successful one, which we like to think we are. What, what needs to happen more broadly, I think, is to realize that future is we need to get much smarter about learning. We need to get much smarter about the science of learning. And here I'm going to be channeling things I've learned recently from some of my learning science colleagues, because I, I don't profess to be a learning scientist. But, um, you know, learning sciences has gotten quite good at being able to explain in particular cases why particular students are learning or not learning. Uh, but our ability to actually take that understanding and generalize it to other learners in other contexts and then, you know, build practices and systems that really, really work, especially technologized ones, is not great. And that's as I'm coming to learn is because there are, there's such a complexity of intersecting individual characteristics and factors and environmental contextual factors that go into whether a particular individual is able to learn a particular concept at a particular pace at a particular time, it, that it's very hard from any small scale study to really get the generalities that you can then take to other learners. And so the solution to that in part lies in smart collaborative use of technology where we pool data. Well, well, first of all, we, we wire up a lot of our learning to collect the right sort of data, right? The right sort of information, which is more than just, you know, basic demographics and what grade a student got in a course, right? We need to get much th more thoughtful about the kind of information we want to get to understand the real learner's context and the learner's abilities and their performance, what they're doing, their behaviors. So obtain the right sort of data and then pool it from large groups of learners that we really start to understand for different categories of learners from different types of contexts and with different types of individual characteristics, you know, what, what works and what doesn't for particular topics at particular times in particular places. And if we, if we pool enough data, we can probably figure this out. I mean, I think, I think the, you know, in the world of social media, um, where they're trying to sell ads, I think they've, they've figured a lot of this out, right. Uh, for commercial reasons, um, Facebook, Amazon, all these, all these companies are, are mining, have developed platforms to obtain all sorts of data about each one of us and then, uh, you know, serve us up with experiences that are designed to nudge us in certain directions, uh, mainly for commercial reasons, now increasingly, I guess, for political reasons. We, we ought to be in a, in a concerted way as an academic community, figuring out how to do something similar, but more transparently, uh, so there's a lot more trust uh, for educational 
purposes. I, I think that's doable, but it requires us to really get together and want want to do it. So I think that's a major next step in the evolution of all this uh, is banding together to, to to figure out what data we want to obtain about our learners um, and then figure out how to share it in a way that is transparent, respects privacy, while at the same time teaches us what we need to know about the learning process so that we can design much, much better learning systems. Well, thank you so much, Ariel, for taking us on this journey and, and pointing towards a more hopeful and engaging learning future. Um, and also give us some things to think about and challenge us to think about how, particularly those of us in the kind of educational community, how can we work together and break down these more siloed approaches and collectively put data to good use as there is so much of a proliferation of data that we can maybe use this to understand learners better and design much more engaging, active experiences for students in science and beyond. So thank you again. We will definitely drop in the show notes, the links that you provided, but if there's anything else you'd like to share as far as how people can learn more about your work and the, and the projects you're working on or anything we didn't cover that you want to highlight, this would be the time to do it. Uh, no, I think we covered the, the, the bulk of it. Uh, I mean, going to that etx.asu.edu website will certainly get you to pretty much everything that the center is doing. Um, I'm happy of course, to, to field individual inquiries. If somebody has something they want to share or ask and pleased to have been here and to have been able to share some time with you. Well, thank you so much. I know I myself will be visiting those links and I'm sure many of our listeners will, will as well. So thank you again for spending time with us and I appreciate the work you're doing to improve um, science learning online. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Learning Futures Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and see you next time. The Learning Futures Podcast is produced at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Executive producers are Dr. Sean Leahy and Claire Gilbert. The show is produced by Dr. Clarine Collins and Karina Munoz-Baltazar. Audio production provided by Claire Gilbert. <laughs>